Let's give our attentive hearing, for this is God's word. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we ask now that your Spirit would come and teach us your word, and that, Lord, we would taste again the goodness of your mercy, goodness of your grace, and be changed by it, be transformed by it. So, God, give us ears, spiritual ears, uh, to hear you open up our hearts to receive um, the, the loving and, and even disciplinary words that come from our Heavenly Father. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are um, continuing our, our series, um, Why We Do What We Do. And um, the goal is the, the same as you know, all the rest, uh, the, the rest of the series. It's to show you from Scripture the, the principle behind uh, each of the practices um, we observe here, especially on Sundays. And um, part of this is to encourage a little bit of skepticism on your part. So you will start asking a bit more, um, why is it that we do what we do at church? and have a scriptural basis for understanding it so that there's more than simply, oh, that's how we've always done things. That's how uh, church always functioned as I was growing up. Um, it's easy to re-familiarize yourself with uh, different things that other churches do. Why is it that we do the things we do? And I hope you'll see that um, it's all in accordance with God's word. And today we're looking at uh, giving God his tithe and our offerings. And yeah, uh, Scripture commands us to give. Scripture commands us to give. Um, it's also clear about why it is that we should give and how, with, with what heart we are uh, to give as well. More than how much, uh, the emphasis often is why and, and how. And Malachi is helpful for this. And so let me give you a little context about Malachi uh, before we dive in. The Hebrew name Malachi means my messenger. It's interesting that it says in verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger. 
because that's Malachi saying God will send another Malachi. And we'll get to what's meant by that later on. But most scholars date Malachi around middle of the 5th century BC, and that's supported by various passages in Malachi that imply the reconstruction of the temple had taken place, which was also around 500 BC. So what's the significance of that? Here's the significance of that. Malachi is ministering as a prophet to God's people after the period of captivity. Uh, after the Babylonian captivity, Jews are now free, and they have their temple back. Uh, they're back in their land, and their agenda now is to make Israel great again. Right? It, and it's a, it's a time of prosperity. There's excitement. There's peace. There's harmony. And then God sends a prophet. Why? Why does God send Malachi to his people? Doesn't the reconstruction of the temple imply all is well? Uh, and it turns out the answer is no. Verse 1, God says, Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Isn't that interesting? He's saying, I'm sending my messenger to prepare the way before me, as in I'm not fully there yet and the lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple as if to say don't assume because you have the physical temple that i'm there that's a sobering word uh, for the israelites uh, turns out there's a sad irony to to all of this physical prosperity and revival and um, harmony and peace that israel was experiencing on the outside Spiritually, they were suffering from a drought, uh, a famine. Uh, they had physical freedom from their physical uh, captors, um, but spiritually, they were still in captivity. Uh, spiritually, they were enslaved. It is possible, in other words, for a whole nation of people to be outwardly, religiously devout and pious and obedient to God's word and experiencing all sorts of prosperity, and at the same time, inwardly, be totally, utterly disconnected from, from God, from the heart of God. That's possible. And the way that God brings his case against Israel through Malachi is sort of like a, almost like a courtroom scene where he puts out the evidence. Exhibit A, here's the evidence. And the evidence is evidence for their spiritual distance from God and um, their, their spiritual um, struggle uh, during this time is their relationship with money. Uh, it seems that their relationship with their money has a direct correlation with their relationship with God. And that'll be the first point. Um, what is the relational verdict that God is giving them here? And following from that, um, the moral verdict that comes after that. The, the relational verdict and the moral verdict. And having covered that, we'll look at how does God still give his good news to those who are guilty under both verdicts, both the relational and the moral verdict. All right, so the relational verdict, the moral verdict, good news for those who are guilty under the verdicts, okay? So point number one, the relational verdict. Look again at what God says in verse eight. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. Okay, what were tithes and contributions? Uh, the practice of giving a tenth of one's harvest, possessions, first fruits, that's an ancient, it was an ancient biblical practice. It goes back to Abraham when he gave a tenth of his spoil to Melchizedek in Genesis 14. 
when Jacob made his vow to God at Bethel in Genesis 28, saying, I will give you a tenth of all that I have. Later on, it's decreed in the law, Leviticus 27, God's people are to give a tenth of all they produce, set it aside as holy to the Lord. And then you also see in Deuteronomy, every few years, tithes will be gathered and they'll be given to sojourners, basically immigrants, the fatherless, orphans, and the widows. So the least provided for will be provided for, and there will be this well-balanced society and economy. How? Through the tithes of God's people. Now, okay, why would God then say, you're robbing me when um, the Israelites refrain from their tithes? Isn't it just the neighbors who are suffering and disadvantaged because of that? Why is God saying you're robbing me? And that, there's only one answer to that. It can only mean one thing. God so identifies with the least of these, the least privileged, least provided for, he views the treatment of them as equal to the treatment of himself. Reminds you of something Jesus said, doesn't it? Um, New Testament version of Malachi 3 is Matthew 25. That's where Jesus says, on the last day, he's going to separate the sheep, the true believers, the true people of God, and the goats, who are only God's people on the outside. And he turns to the goats, and he says, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. Whoa, strong words. Um, Why? What's his reasoning there? For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. I was sick and in prison. You did not visit me. And the goats will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, naked, stranger, sick, in prison, and not tend to you? And the the king, it says, the king will say, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. The same relational dynamic exists in Matthew 25. In Malachi 3, God is so identifying with the least of these that to refuse to help them is to rob God himself. It is to violate him and offend him. So the lack of Israel's generosity towards their neighbors um, and when they live in this sort of greedy, materialistic way, disregard the sojourner and the, the less capable, less privileged, that wasn't just a matter of you know this this unhealthy distance between them and their neighbors and foreigners, it revealed the distance between them and their God. As you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. You know what else this tells us is when you listen to the goats, when they say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger? Um, What are you talking about, God? Um, what that implies is when we are greedy, when we offend the Lord this way, we don't know that we're doing that. Uh, there's a reason why greed is one of the least confessed sins of all the sins. It's the sin that, in a sense, hides the best. Like, like um, I've heard it put it like this, when you're, when you're committing adultery, you know you're committing adultery. Uh, you, you don't suddenly find yourself with someone who's not your spouse. Wait, you're not the person I married. Um, people who commit adultery know that they're committing adultery people who are being greedy don't think that they're being greedy uh it's not like wait a minute i am operating with greed in my heart right now that's not a normal train of thought that occurs to us so malachi is trying to find a way to wake you into it okay sober you up to your indifference and blindness to your greed 
our greed. And um, he's saying, basically, when you're doing this, you're not just being stingy with your neighbor. You're not just falling short of being a model Christian. Brother, sister, hear me, you are robbing God. That's what he's trying to say. Kind of shake you out of the, the blindness. He's helping you connect the dots that you don't normally connect uh, between your inner reality, inner spirituality, and God's reality. Because, right? right, we don't we don't readily connect, for example, the thought of, you know, oh, I don't have all that I need. Uh, and interpret that as, oh, that's a greedy thought. We might think that's that may be just a true thought. Uh, we don't acknowledge how, oh, I must have enough to enough saved to feel totally safe uh, for the foreseeable future and be totally set for life how that doesn't stem from valid fears how that actually stems from our greed um, how we would use language about self-care to protect our greed um, adding to that confusion is how greed gets tangled up with other spiritual problems that we often struggle with sometimes our love of money is really a love of pleasure and we need to spend money on things to keep us living a pleasurable life. Sometimes our love of money is a love of aestheticism, to prop up an image of ourselves so that people would approve of how we look uh, before others. So to, it's not so much that you love money, but it's love, you love what money can do for you. It can create an image that, that you've, you're proud of. In, in Matthew 6, uh, it's interesting because right after Jesus teaches about being a lover of money and a slave to money, he then says, don't be anxious. Immediately after that, uh, don't worry about what you will eat or what you will wear. And instead, uh, consider the birds and the lilies. He, he counsels the lover of money uh, by addressing their anxiety and, and help them consider the birds and the lilies. Why? He, he points out how the birds are provided for in their sustenance, and he points out how the lilies are provided for in their appearance. Uh, the birds, in a sense, represent how we get anxious about material things, our security. And the lilies represent how we get anxious about our approval, our beauty. And he's basically telling us the way you've been coping with being an anxious bird or anxious lily is by turning to money and putting your trust in money. And therefore, you fall into the love of money. You turn money into a God that you trust in to give you the security you don't have, the beauty you feel you lack. Um, and so what does he begin to do? He begins to turn the anxious heart towards the heavenly father who gives us true security and true beauty as God defines it. Um, so without that remembrance of God, of who he is and how he provides for us as our heavenly father, what our relationship to him is, when, you, when that goes out the window, you want to be adopted by something else, namely money. For money to provide you the security and the beauty that only God can give you. So this is, before it's a financial matter, before even it's a, it's a moral matter, it's a relational matter. Who do you trust? Who's your father? Who's your daddy who's providing for you? Okay. Uh, who do you whose shoulders do you lean on? Who carries you? Who, who picks you up when you fall? Who fills your cup when you're dry? Is it your heavenly father? Um, or is it money uh, that you earn for yourself? It's our forgetfulness of God, the God who is our loving Heavenly Father, caring Heavenly Father. It's a forgetfulness of Him and the severance of that relationship that causes us to be either greedily anxious or anxiously greedy. So that's the relational verdict that Malachi, I think, first presents us. Um, 
revealing to us the greed that comes from our love of money that we use to also address all sorts of other problems we have in our lives. That's why the New Testament says you cannot love both. You cannot love both God and money. You either hate the one, love the other, serve the one, and reject the other. You cannot love both God and money. And again, that's love of money. It's not saying money is bad, right? The love of money is bad. So here, that's the relational verdict. Here's a, here's a second point about the moral verdict, okay? This is a very simple point. Um, if point number one was about it's bad to rob God, don't rob God. The second point is this. The second point is it's bad to rob, period. Um, robbing is bad. <laughs> um, amen. Let's close in prayer. No. Um, the follow-up question you should ask as I say that is, doesn't robbing imply that I'm taking something from someone that does not belong to me? That's what robbing implies. Yes, is the answer. And that's exactly what robbing means, and that's exactly what the Bible is meaning to say to you about your money. It's not your money. You don't own a single penny. It's God's money. Oof. <laughs> uh, now the whole you shall not steal takes on a different meaning. Remember the parable of the, the master and his laborers in the vineyard, Matthew chapter 20, how this master brings in the laborers into his vineyard, promises them a certain amount of wages. The parable was about God, the creator, and his people being stored over his creation. And the way Jesus opens up that parable is by saying the kingdom of heaven is like that. It's like a master of a house who hires laborers for his vineyard, his vineyard. And the, and the master is synonymous with being this owner who owns everything. And the word laborer is, by definition, someone who works for money without owning anything. They're stewards of everything. And he's saying that's our relationship with our, our creator. So everything the, the laborer works to acquire is ultimately coming from his relationship to the master and is contingent on that relationship with his master. No master, no vineyard, no vineyard, no work and no sustenance. God owns it all, therefore, and you are stewards of everything that is his, his possessions. You don't own any of it. You're stewards of it all. That, that's the point of the parable, and that's really the premise of the Bible whenever it speaks about our possessions and our wealth. It belongs to the one who made it all and gave it all to us. We brought nothing into this world. You didn't even will your own existence. It's all from God. Job chapter three, uh, 33, it says, The Spirit of God has made me in the breath of the Almighty, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. Every breath we breathe into our lungs, even in this moment, we owe God for every single one of them. Has every breath we've been breathing have, have those breaths been breathed for his glory? How is your breathing? Is it holy? Is it consecrated to the Lord? Every ounce of life, every ounce of health he gives us that we enjoy are his gifts for us to steward for his purposes, for his kingdom. Is that how we have been breathing and living? We're laborers in his vineyard. We don't own a thing. 
It's all his and we'll all return to him. But have we been pretending uh, that these are ours? It's my body. It's my money. It's my work. It's my house. It's my car. It's my clothes. It's my life. And therefore, I will do with it what I will. And when God says, give it all to me, that's, it feels like a big ask, Lord, because it's mine. You and I are thieves. <laughs> We're robbers of God. We defraud the creator who made us for his glory, and we take all of his resources to glory in ourselves. That's the moral verdict. And Malachi, therefore, is our prophet. He's, he's telling us this, that this deeply rooted false assumption that we are our own masters, owners of our own possessions, right? It's not just, the problem is not stinginess. The problem is wickedness. It's immoral. You're not just setting up not as ideal an example. No, it is an example of evil. The problem is not stinginess, it's wickedness. We have a moral verdict on our hands because we've been stealing from God. We've been robbing him. Now, the elephant in the room here may be that, okay, these are Old Testament texts. Do we in the New Testament as uh, the believers of Christ living under the new covenant, must we also obey the command to tithe? Answer is kind of, okay, but not in the way that you think. Here's what I mean. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus says to the Pharisees, woe to you because you tithe, and yet, you neglect justice and love of God and you neglect the care for other people. Meaning, he's communing to the Pharisees, you're basically giving a tenth of your income and then checking out. And 90% and, uh, uh, of the rest of your life, rest of your resources, you're keeping for yourself. And he's condemning that. Meaning, giving a tenth was not meant to be the sort of limit cap on our giving. It's the baseline. Of our giving. It's the beginning of our giving. It is a symbol that our 100% belongs entirely to the Lord. So the New Testament doesn't nullify the Old, Te Old Testament commandment to tithe. It elevates it. It elevates the command to an even higher standard. The, the tenth isn't sufficient. The tenth is simply a gesture that symbolizes that God owns it all. And you are to glorify God with every breath you breathe and everything you got. And therefore, we're stuck in this moral verdict. We, we are not somehow under less responsibility and accountability in the New Testament. If anything, we're under more because under the New Testament, we have a greater grace, a greater, a promise-keeping Savior who's come to us in Christ. But here's the good news. The good news is that this greater prophet, Christ, when he came to us, he didn't come the way that Malachi came with verdicts. He came with good news. There's good news for those who are guilty under the relational and the moral verdict. Here's what our passage tells us. Um, verse 1, Malachi says, there's another messenger, another Malachi who is to come. Of that covenant you will delight. And in the gospel, we see that being fulfilled in John the Baptist, who says, I'm the one who's come to prepare the way before the Lord. Um, that was fulfilled in John the Baptist's coming. And what was his message when he came? 
Return to the Lord. Repent. Repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Turn away from your sins. Return to the Lord. And soon after that, just as it says in Malachi, the Lord enters the temple. Jesus Christ enters the temple, doesn't he? And what does he do? He throws out the money changers. He throws out the greedy merchants. He cleanses it. He, he is the refiner's fire in Malachi 3. The fire that removes the imperfections from God's people so that it will be precious metal, genuine, authentic, not weighed down by the draws, not weighed down by the imperfections. When people ask Jesus, what, by what authority do you do this? Jesus answers, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. By that, he was referring to his own body, which will be crucified, and on the third day rise again. He was talking about his death and resurrection. That will be, for those who look to him, for forgiveness, for, for change, a purifying fire. He will purify his people. And the, the New Testament also says, when you do turn to the Lord this way, he will make you into a house of God holy and set apart that God himself will be pleased to dwell in. You become the temple of the Lord. So the good news for the guilty and the condemned is this. God wants to draw so near to you that he wants to live with you and not leave you in the state of condemnation and guilt that rejection cast outness but to remove all of your imperfections and refine you, no matter how imperfect you are. No matter how impure you are, no matter how difficult you are to love, He will love you. When God sees your dross, your imperfections, and your guilt, He's not like us who run away. We run from people's imperfections. We're weighed down by people's imperfections. Well, Jesus is not like that. He says, come to me. Let me refine you. Let me perfect you. That is the good news. The love that draws near to us despite our imperfections and at a cost, at a cost to himself. What did it cost him to love you and me? To draw us near rather than to cast us out. He had to be cast out. It meant that he had to suffer the other end of that fire, the second half of Malachi, the fire of God's judgment, fire of his wrath on the cross. And remember who were next to Jesus hanging on the cross? Thieves, robbers. He died among thieves to save thieves, those who have been robbing God of his glory, of his creation, of his gifts. He died to save those who robbed God. And it didn't just cost Jesus 10%. It cost him everything. He gave his 100% to save those who had been robbing him. It cost him everything to make thieves, thieves in his vineyard, his friends. To make them his treasure. He emptied his cup so yours would be filled. He, he gave you security and forfeited his. He gave you beauty and put on your shame. That was the cost. He, the price he paid to love you, to love me. That is the good news. 
And our response to this good news is, on the one hand, how will you now cherish the one who has so cherished you? How will you treasure him the way he's treasured you? Will you treasure him with everything you got? The Bible says, start by giving your 10%, 10 10% of your first fruits, so that it will reorient your heart 100% towards the kingdom of God. And that will yield for you a genuine, pure, refined faith that is not weighed down by the dross of materialism. I am someone who needs money to be safe. Your faith will not be weighed down by that imperfection. Or the dross and imperfection of aestheticism. I need money to be beautiful and attractive and create an image that's acceptable. Your faith will not be weighed down by that. When you reorient your heart towards God as your Heavenly Father who provides for you, as the Creator who owns it all, and as your Savior who forgives uh, all the instances in which you are a robber of God, um, you draw your security and your beauty from Him and from no one else. You acknowledge, God, you are all I need for my security, all I need for my beauty. And then that Here's the second way that we respond to that. You draw near to one another in their imperfections. Even if it costs you, uh, you draw near to those who weigh upon you, put a burden on your shoulders, and you carry that cross the way Jesus carried the cross for you. And so when you see the dross and imperfections in your neighbors, in your brother and sister's hearts, you don't run. You say, come. I'm committed to you. I'm committed to sticking around and praying for your refining, your purifying, your betterment, your maturing. That's how we respond to this because we're indebted to this. We never pay this that back, but we can respond to it by imitating the grace that we have received from the Lord. So worship Him with everything you got in your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and worship Him with everything you got in your wallet, reorient the entirety of your life towards your king, towards your creator, towards your savior. Let's pray. Our gracious heavenly father, uh, you have been so, so good and so, so generous with us. Um, Before we had even a conception of me, mine, and I, you conceived of us and you created us you gave us everything and lord we return to you we return to you our maker our creator acknowledge you as our master the master of our vineyard and we also turn to you our savior to be forgiven and cleansed and refined of our idols our worship and love of money our trust in money that often was greater than our trust in you Lord, we come to your Son who forgives such sinners and adopts them into your family. Uh, We come to the cross where that mercy and grace is found and freely flowing for us. So, Lord, we come to you uh, to be filled once again, uh, to be generously provided for once again uh, by your grace and mercy 
and find, Lord, may we find all the, the strength and beauty we need in Christ. And change us, transform the way we therefore live our lives and also interact with one another. And when we see the imperfections and the draws in our neighbors, um, help us to draw near the way you have drawn near to us. Empower us this way by your Holy Spirit dwelling inside us, your living temples. And we pray all of these things uh, in your Son's beautiful name. Amen.